0: Alrighty, we are are speeding through the book of Colossians here, and um, just kind of catch everybody up where we are. We of course introduced the uh, letter and explained to everyone that the book of Colossians was written to a church that Paul never visited. Uh, He learned about this particular church when he was a prisoner in Rome by a guy by the name of Epaphras, and Epaphras told him about a very terrible thing that was going on in the church there. Um, the early forms of what's known as Gnosticism, and we could spend a lot of time talking about the different aspects of Gnosticism, but let me remind you again tonight, because it's pertinent to what we're going to be looking at, that um, Gnosticism believed that um, spirit and matter couldn't interconnect. Spirit's totally good, matter's totally bad, and therefore, uh, there's no way that, that they could ever come together. And so that means that God could not have created the world. In fact, they believed that there was a bunch of intermarrier angel God-like creatures that kept stepping down, stepping down from God. and they as they stepped down, they became less good and more evil to the point that there was someone evil enough to create the world, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but that's what they believed. And they also believed that there's no way that Jesus, Christ, hey, that Jesus Christ, Uh, could really be God in the flesh because that is not possible because God is totally good, man is totally evil, and therefore um, it just couldn't happen. There's no way in the world that uh, Christ could uh, truly be God. He was either a man and he lied about it, he wasn't God, or he was fully God, but he never really became a man. He was just a... um, a figment of our imagination, or a spirit that took on what looked like human, but it really wasn't human. It was just a uh, apparition, if you will. Um, and of course, if that is the case, that he truly wasn't the Son of God, he truly wasn't a perfect man, and that does away with um, our plan of salvation as we know it, and the Gnostics realized that, and they came up with their own plan of salvation that basically dealt with defeating the flesh. If you were going to be saved, you had to find a way to defeat the flesh. And they came up with all kinds of rituals, all kinds of things, all kinds of mysticism, uh, different things. One of the things that um, was born out of Gnosticism was known as asceticism, uh, which is the idea of totally trying to deny your body everything possible, all joy, all happiness, uh, strict dietary uh, you may be seeing movies where somebody who thinks they're very religious will take a whip and beat the back of their back with it a certain number of times to help bring their body under subjection. That's kind of the foolishness that came out of this uh, because um, they they knew what was best, thus the idea of Gnosticism or to know, and so they would have people uh, climb rungs of a spiritual ladder, if you will, till they reached the point that, um, you know, that they could be at their level and they could be... Uh, Truly, a spiritual person because they have defeated the flesh. Uh, went through that very quickly because we've said it many times. But any questions or comments about Gnosticism, or maybe another question about that or you thought about as we've been going through this class? All right. So after we introduced the material, the why this book was written, we of course went through and and talked about how it was written by Paul and he's really putting forth his idea of apostleship here because he wants to use his authority since he's dealing with a heresy in the church there. And, of course, he dresses the faithful brethren there, and he's telling them um, to hang on and gives them, of course, ammunition to deal with the Gnostics. At the same time, uh, he's encouraging them and defeating the very things that would be getting them down as far as Gnosticism is concerned. And... um, after making the customary greeting in verse 2, he begins a uh, prayer that uh, most people believe goes all the way down uh, through uh, uh, at least verse 14 or 15, depending on who you talk to, but um, he, he talks about how thankful he was for them, and then he talks about the things that God he wants God to do for them in this prayer. Uh, the first part of the prayer where he's thankful, the things that he's thankful for is the fact that And the main gist of what he's thankful for is that he's thankful for their hope, that they have a home in heaven, a confident expectation. And it's all based upon the grace of God, as we see in verse 6. And then you have the separator of verse 7 about how he knew about all this. And then he starts in verse 9 talking about the things he wants for the church at Colossae, the Christians there, and how he wanted them to grow in knowledge. As they grew in knowledge and spiritual understanding, they're going to walk worthily in the Lord and being fruitful and continue to increase in knowledge of God. And after saying that, he begins in verse 11. This is where we stopped. Uh, we got through it, I believe. But uh, strengthening with all might according to his glorious power and to all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. And. Um, I didn't bring this out last week, but I think it's very important what Paul does here. Uh, And especially as you get through the end of this prayer here, the reason why he does the way he does. If you'll notice at the beginning of this prayer, he puts a lot of emphasis on their confidence and their expectation being in what? At the beginning of the prayer. What's their confidence and expectation being? What is the thing that he emphasizes, the reason why they have a home in heaven? It's not hard. Now, so here, the very first part, here, verses 4 through 6. All right, the, tr- the truth of the gospel, and what is the truth of the gospel? Come on. You. This is not hard. I'm, I'm not trying to trick you here. All right. And uh, so the truth of the gospel is because of death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a person can be saved of their sins and be forgiven, and they can have a confident expectation of home in heaven. All right, and as verse 6 ends, it's because they knew the grace of God in their own selves, so their own understanding. All right, then he begins talking about some things that they need to do. He wants them to grow in knowledge. He wants them to grow in spiritual understanding. He wants them to be walk worthy. He wants them to bear fruit. But now, after he says that, he swings back around and look at all the emphasis of what we're going to be seeing Starting here at verse 11 is the emphasis is upon God and upon his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so you've got it sandwiched here. You've got God's grace. Here's what you need to be doing. And at the end of it, you've got basically God's grace again. Now, why do you think it was important that Paul did that when he's talking to these group of people? And to give you a hint, what did I just say at the beginning of the class about the Gnostics? Exactly right. The Gnostics were saying, if you want to get to this point, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. Now, the grace of God and the worth of what He has done for us and the love and appreciation that goes along with it should cause us to want to do the things that Christ wants us to do. But once again, as we emphasize, and Paul emphasizes in in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that doesn't earn you anything. And Paul wants to make sure he emphasizes to these people that I'm not telling you to do the same thing the Gnostics did because that is not what's going to save you. What's going to save you is the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has that sandwich right there in the middle, the things that he expects of them and wants God to do with them, which are good things which we should expect of ourselves. But at the same time, he doesn't want to turn it into a form of legalism like the Gnostics were doing. In fact, he'll spend a lot of time talking about this in chapter 2 as he amplifies some of the things he's talked about here in chapter 1. But it's just neat how he does that. And if you look at the text very carefully, verses 4 through 6, he talks about God. It's all about God. And then he makes mention in verse 7 about how he heard about this in verses 7 and 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the, the responsibilities that we have as a Christian and they are responsibilities. But then, lest someone get discouraged and think, Oh man, I can't do this. I, I have, as I mentioned last Wednesday, we have bad days, we have good days. We know even in the days we get it exactly right, we're still not exactly right. He, he, he repositions again and comes back to his beginning thing by saying, Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power." Where's the emphasis now? It's on God, not on the individual. Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. The reason why the Christian endures is because it's according to God's glorious power. It's not to the individual's glorious power. And that's why the verse ends with the idea with joyfulness. Uh, why should Christians be joyful? Is it because we never have a bad day? All right. In fact, he's going to say that here in just a minute. Somehow, saw something else. Absolutely, um, Christians are sometimes some of the hardest people on themselves, and because of that, they're not always joyful people. Sometimes they look like they've been um, eating dill pickles. It was what was Chuck used to say, weaned off a of dill pickle or something like that. Um, and it's because they have so beaten themselves down uh, that they forget the joy in Christianity. Uh, I think that more people would come to worship service. I think more people would find happiness in worship services. I think more people would be more involved in the work of the church if they understood the joyfulness of Christianity and not the dutiness of Christianity. There are duties that we have a responsibility to do, but we don't do them because we have a, feel like we have an obligation or a duty. We do it out of joyous... Response to what's been done for us, and um, we have the we have the freedom to know that I, I can do my best. Yet when I when I fail, God's there to pick me up because, as it says in verse eleven, I'm strengthened with His might, with His glorious power, and that should give me the patience and the endurance to go through joyfully. And to emphasize that, he begins he starts verse twelve, where we really want to pick up tonight. He says, "...giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be betakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light." I'm going to keep reading because he has this all as one sentence and you combine all this together, boy, you've got something wonderful here. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice what he's done here. Verse 4, uh, I mean, verse 5, he talks about the hope which is laid up in heaven. It's reserved for you in heaven. This came about because you obeyed the truth of the gospel. Verse 6 talks about because you fully understood the grace of God. And then he talks about what, is, uh, what we should be doing as Christians. And then he brings it back after saying, You're going to be strengthened because of the glorious power of God. And we need to give thanks to him. And here's where the glorious power and the giving of thanks all comes together. And some beautiful, beautiful phrases here, especially in the Greek. All right? So after telling us to give thanks, here's the reason why we need to give thanks to the Father. First of all, he says, which made us meet. Now, that's an old English term and doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Maybe somebody with a newer translation will have... What does that mean, made us meet? Doesn't mean he made us meet, M-E-A-T. All right. Qualified. Very good. Is that what the N I B has? He has qualified us. In other words, he has made us good enough is the idea behind the Greek. Think about that for a minute. We should be strengthened, as verse 11 says, and give thanks unto the Father... Because he has qualified us. He has made us good enough. Now, you ever have some days where you don't feel good enough? I do. And I'm sure anybody here, that they were honest, would say, I'm not good enough. And the truth is, no one's ever good enough. Um, a while back, I had a sermon on, on, the, on the Christian's assurance about um, going to heaven and that type of thing. And I said... If somebody asks me, are you going to heaven, Jim? And I'll say, absolutely, I'm going to heaven. And somebody says, well, how dare you You think you're good enough to go to heaven? Mm -mm. No, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. No one is. But what does Paul say here? He says, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us qualified or good enough. And here's the thing, unless you know Greek language, you miss even more. This particular participle here, this particular thing in the original language is in the aorist tense. The aorist tense means there. there's really two ways that Greek tenses work. There's several. There's the perfect, the imperfect, the aorist, the present, and all that kind of thing. But the two main ones is the present tense and the aorist tense. Present tense is continuous action. Think of a straight line. Okay. The aorist tense is what you call punctiliar means that it is something that happens at a particular point in time. There's something that happened. Um, This is the aorist imperfect, which means literally this is something that happened at a specific point in time in the past. I see Michael reading, nodding his head because he might be familiar with that. So he has used phrases here in the next couple verses that talk about things that happen at a specific point in time in the past. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that's already happened. So that's the reason why he uses the, the the King James says, uh, has made us meet, not will make us meet, not will uh, one day be that way, but we are right now sitting in our pews, me standing up here, according to Paul, we are already qualified, we are already good enough. And that's a hard thing to grasp Sometimes. But that's what he's saying, and that's why we have joyfulness, and that's why we want to give thanks to the Father, okay? But then he goes on and says, Hath made us qualified or made us good enough to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, King James Version has partakers. Anybody have anything different? Sharing is a good word there. All right, call it. All right, there's that qualified again. The word partaker here, once again, it's in the aorist and perfect, so it means it's something that's already happened in the past. It's an unusual word. It's a word that means to, like, divide up into lots. And I don't mean Barbara and Roger. Um, but it's, it carries with it the idea of when the Israelite people went into the land of Canaan, and they conquered it, it came time to... Divide the land up among the tribes. It's that type of idea. Um, In our subdivision, it's hard to believe, but we've got 989 homes in our subdivision where we live. Well, the reason why there's that many homes is because the contractor and whoever else went there divided that up into lots, okay, and put a house on every lot. That's the same idea that's being taken here, We need to be joyful, giving thanks unto the Father which has qualified us or made us good enough so that we already have, in a sense, and paraphrasing here, lots already divided up for us in heaven. Why? Because we have received the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, the saints in light, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but make sure we don't Miss the point that he's wanting us to see here and the confidence he wants us to see here and the emphasis he's putting on here. Remember, he's dealing with people who are, who, who are Gnostics. The brethren there are dealing with people who are Gnostics and they keep saying that you know, it's all about the flesh. You've got to do something about the flesh. You've got to conquer the flesh. You've got to somehow on your own beat this. Paul says that has nothing to do with it whatsoever. You were already qualified, and because you were qualified or made good enough, you already have a lot or a place that has been taken care of that's now your inheritance. Now, obviously, the aorist tense, the imperfect, points to a specific point in time in the past. What would that time be? All right, very good, when a person becomes a Christian. They, that's the heiress, that's the point in time when they became, this is what has happened to you, all right? So he's going to keep building on this. It's like he gets on a roll here. We're joyful and we're giving thanks because, first of all, God the Father has made us qualified. He has given us, just to make it simple in English, he has given us a lot or given us an allotment of the inheritance that all the saints... Who are in the light will receive. Okay. The word saints, as we talked about in the beginning of this text, means those who are holy, and to even be called holy is something we couldn't do on our own. And so he's emphasizing that again. Uh, the, next, the thing that that sometimes commentators quibble on is the idea of what does he mean about the inheritance of the of saints in light. Um, there's no definite article there. So it's saying just in light. Why do you think he decided to do that? Why do you say saints? And by saints, he means all who are saved. Why in light? All right. That's a good way to think about it. In fact, in just a moment, in verse 13, he's going to go to the darkness. He's making a contrast here. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But think about the fact that he's put the emphasis on the light right here. That you need to be joyful. You need to thank the Father because he has qualified you and given you allotment, which is a part of your inheritance for being a saint. Well, we read that and we think, oh, I don't see how that works. I don't, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. In fact, it doesn't even seem fair to me. How in the world does that work? Especially if we start thinking about our own selves. Well, He hasn't stopped. Notice what he says in verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. All right, the word deliver there. Does anybody have anything different? Rescue. That's about the best translation there is. Uh, It carries with it the idea of being rescued from danger. And once again, it's in the aorist and perfect tense. This is something that had happened at a specific point in time in the past. I saw a hand up over here somewhere. Was it Beverly's? Okay, that's all right. But your word we're going to get to in just a moment, okay? So he has delivered us or rescued us from danger. He is the one who has rescued us. It's not us who have been res- who've done our own rescuing. He once again is emphasizing the fact that uh, we didn't save ourselves, we didn't rescue ourselves. The Gnostics are wrong here. God is the one who rescues us. God is the one who saves us. And it came at a particular point in time. But notice what he rescued us from. And here's why perhaps Paul used the word light in verse 12. He has rescued us from the power of darkness. All right, the devil. All right, why is... The devil associated with darkness, Roger. All right, that's true. But why is, why is it that way? Yes, Beverly. There you go. In the dark, there is blindness. We can't, we can't see anything. Uh, Karen and I have been in some caves over in Kentucky and in other places that when they turn the lights off, it is the craziest dark you've ever experienced because it is pitch black dark. You cannot see a thing, and it 's so quiet you can literally hear the blood running past your ears and through your brain that 's how quiet and how dark it is, okay yeah, oh, you remember that story <laughs> what well, Michael 's referring to. we were in Mammoth Cave one time, and the ranger was telling us this story about how that it 's so dark there that if you wave your hand real fast in front of your face that the moisture on your hand will interact with static electricity, it will start making light. I knew what he was doing, but he flipped the light on real quick and Karen and several other people were going... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. Yep, but darkness is associated with, with danger. Um, darkness is a place, obviously, where, where God isn't. In fact, I'm working on my sermon for this Sunday and I'm going to be talking about a place you don't want to go. And one of the things about this place you don't want to go is it's darkness. And the reason why it's darkness is because God's not there. And so God has rescued us from a place that had power that was darkness. And I think also Paul's making a play on words here because the Gnostics, uh, some of their ceremonies and some of their rituals and rites, guess what it involved? Darkness putting on robes and putting on the hoods and everything was dark and mysterious. And the idea is we are saints in the light and the reason why we are saints in the light is because of the fact we are no longer in the darkness. The power of darkness has no power over us. Now we miss that sometimes in this text. If he has rescued us from the power of darkness, we're rescued. The power of darkness... As far as what the text is talking about here, it should not have control over us anymore. Now, don't misunderstand me. Somebody else he's saying something he's not saying. We still have to deal with the sin issue every day. If you don't believe me, read First John, the first chapter. But yet the idea here that he's trying to build up into them and to give confidence to them and to us is he has rescued us from the power of that darkness. And he doesn't stop there. He just keeps building on this and building on this He wants to make sure he overemphasizes this. Notice what he's done so far. We should, beginning at verse 11, we should be strengthened because of God's glorious power and have all patience and endurance with joyfulness, giving thanks unto God because he has qualified us. He's given us allotment as far as our inheritance with the rest of the saints because he has rescued us from the power of darkness and has translated us, into the kingdom of his dear son. That's some powerful stuff there. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, let's make it very, very simple. There are several places we could go, but very simple. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 real quick. And let's just start very quickly at uh, chapter 10 and verse 22. And notice the things he says here. He says, first of all, in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. All right, that's what he says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. All right, so we've got having full assurance and it's based upon our faith. Look at verse 23. I'm not going to cover every little thing, every verse, because this is what the class is on. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. All right? Then he makes mention of the fact that, that one of the things we should not be involved in is forsaking the assembly of ourselves uh, ourselves together. Then he says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, if someone reads that and they say, whoa, I know at least after I became a Christian, I know at least sin willfully one time or more. That's not what he's talking about here, okay? The key to it all is when you get down to verse 29, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. All right? That's what he's referring to. Now, how in the world can someone... Trodden underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an an unholy thing and done despite to the Spirit of grace. What would that involve? All right, look what he said. Hold to your faith. Hold with full assurance your faith in God. Remember the book of Hebrews was written to people who were Jews who became Christians and they were tempted to go back into Judaism, okay? So the way I understand that and appreciate the text is this is a person who has given up his faith in Jesus Christ and says, I'm not going to depend upon it anymore. I'm turning my back on Jesus Christ. I don't need his blood. I don't need his forgiveness. And, um, you know, where that line is and how that happens, does that happen... Uh, on a daily basis or is something that somebody uh, over a period of time does, I can't answer that question. But I do know that sometimes because of the once-saved, always-saved doctrine, uh, we swing the pendulum so far away from it that we get the idea in our heads, if I'm saved, yes, maybe, but barely saved. And that's a false doctrine also. There needs to be the balance right there in the middle Obviously, a person can fall away because the Bible has warning after warning after warning about it. And, of course, our denominational friends say, well, well, that's people who really weren't Christians to begin with. But that's not what the Bible says. It talks about even this text here, that these were people that were that way. But then we go to the other extreme and say that a person can never, ever know, that a person just, just has to be on pins and needles every day, has to, they think of God... Uh, like Jonathan Edwards does, that he's just dangling us over the fiery pits of hell with scissors and a string waiting for us to mess up one time, and then, boom, that's the end of it. The idea of Christianity and the idea of even what Paul's talking about here in Colossians is, where do you put your confidence? When we say we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're not just simply saying we have faith in the man that he existed. Though That's a part of it. We're not just saying we have faith in the doctrine of Christianity. That's a part of it. But the faith that the Bible talks so much about and how we are justified by that faith, as, he, as we saw in the class on Sunday morning, how that Abraham's faith was counted toward him, toward righteousness, is the idea that it's God that saves. It's faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. Um, that blood is not a license to sin and just go free and just do whatever you want to do. But yet at the same time, a person needs to understand and appreciate the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ is there to, to save us and that we depend upon that blood to save us. Our faith is in that. And as we mess up and and do things sometimes we shouldn't do, the idea is not to give up and say, well, I'm just forgetting this whole thing called Jesus Christ and Christianity, but instead... We have the idea, as, as, as John talks about in 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, he says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. That's talking about direction, not perfection. It's walking. It's a direction, not perfection. But then he goes in the very next verse, and he says, If we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us, and we make him a liar. Then in the very next verse, he says, if we confess our sins, we are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in the very next verse, he says, well, if you say you're not a sinner and you don't sin from time to time, and I'm paraphrasing here, then you're calling, the truth is just not in you. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, the very next verse, he says, my children, my little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the Lord, which is the propitiation of our sins. So there's a, there's a balance there that we need to understand that God, because of what he has done for us, he doesn't want us to sin and we should try not to sin. But the bottom line hard fact of it all is we're going to sin. And sometimes we sin and we don't even know we've sinned uh, because of missed opportunities, because of, of things that we should have done, we didn't do. Uh, there's sins of, of, of omission and sins of commission. But the point is, as we live the Christian life, our, our goal and our plea is to always put our faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know I started preaching the whole sermon there, but uh, to that, that help answer your question, that makes sense? I think, honestly, we, we've been so conditioned against denominationalism and once saved, always saved, that we about pushed ourselves to the extent, well, I can never know folks, if that's the case, Christianity is just nothing. There's no point in being a Christian. What what's the difference between me and somebody else who's not a Christian? I, I don't have anything different than they do. They were worried before, now I'm worried before. I'm just worried even more because now I know there's more rules to break. Uh, there has to be something else there. Yes? Absolutely. And um, that's why the Bible talks about how that sometimes uh, Christians need milk and sometimes they need meat. Uh, because we're all at different levels. Um, before we run out of time here, I don't want to leave verse 13, uh, leave it hanging there. But notice what he said, he has rescued us and from the power of darkness. And then the last part of verse 13 says, he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, I believe, Beverly, for the word translated, you had the word convey. Is that what you were talking about then? Does anybody have anything different other than convey or translate it? us. Okay, this once again is a very interesting word. It's a word that, that kings use in reference to moving a group of people from one, group, one place to another place. Um, if anybody had any Jewish background that was reading these words of Paul and saw this word, they'd know immediately what he was talking about. Because they would remember how that when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, how they took all the people out of that kingdom and took them to Assyria... That's where they lived. Or if they were part of the southern kingdom, Judah, they would go back to the time of the Babylonian captivity, how the people of Judah were carried off into another country because that's what the king had decided. He wanted those people to live there. Well, that's the same word that's going on here, but this time it's applied to the kingdom of God. He is saying that you have been moved from one place, and that would be the place of Satan, the place of the world, the place that you were before as a sinner. And now you have been moved, you have been packed up, you have uh, trans- and transferred to another place. And once again, this is in the aorist imperfect tense. This is something that happened at a particular point in time in the past. And the wonderful thing is, he's saying that you now have been moved because you have been qualified, because you have an allotment in heaven through your inheritance, you have been rescued from the power of darkness, and now you have been moved into the kingdom of his dear son, literally into the kingdom of the son whom he loves. I know sometimes our premillennial friends try to tell us that God, doesn't, I mean, Jesus Christ doesn't have a kingdom right now, but... He has a kingdom right now, and we're in it right now because we've been moved into that kingdom. I saw a hand somewhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, obviously it takes, as we grow as Christians, and even after we become Christians, we, we under, begin to understand things more clear than we did before. And I think it's because we get more teaching and we, read, we study more. As I've told you before, each and every time I read the Bible, if I really read it and study it and spend some time in deep thought in it, I always learn something more. I mean, I always do. I've taught the book of Colossians many times, but even when I'm teaching it this time, I know. Um, She's trying to tell me I don't know what time. (laughs) it's But I learned something more. Um, We're going to talk about this next week, uh, but make sure you see how this ends in verse 14. Um, And we'll talk about this, about how in whom, this is where it comes from, in whom we have redemption, the price has been paid through his blood, even the forgiveness or the cancellation of debt uh, of sin. And uh, we'll talk more about that next week. But as Karen has correctly pointed out, our time is up. Thank you for your attention and for your questions and comments.